This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore from 2014, a conversation with the late Pat Conroy, world-renowned South Carolina author, and with his siblings, Mike, Tim, Jim, and Kathy, about the intersection of real life with Pat's fiction, what it was like to grow up with the great Santini as a father. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me in the Susan D. Boyd and M. Edward Sellers studio today are four of the children of the great Santini. We have Kathy Harvey, Tim Conroy, Jim Conroy, and Pat Conroy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the journal. And I'd like to start with Kathy. And if you just say hello so that folks can recognize your voice as we get into the discussion. Hello, this is Kathy Harvey. Hello, this is Tim Conroy. This is Jim Conroy. Uh, This is Pat Conroy. I'd like to apologize for everything my family is about to say (laughs) and reveal about me in this next hour. Let's start off, Pat. I want to ask your siblings if the world you depicted in The Great Santini was their world. And Tim, how would would you react to that? You were a real youngster then. Uh, I was five years old when Pat was 18. But, you know, the intensity of what he captured in The Great Santini was exactly what I recall and remember. You know, I can't describe the dysfunction of those times. I think Pat caught, and I really think the, um, the movie caught the spirit of the family. Of course, Jim has the best line about that movie ever. <laughs> I have no idea what line he's talking about. So well, I'll yeah, I do. I know exactly yeah, yeah. what line, Yes. You were at the opening in Buford, South Carolina, on the front row with the family. Oh. And Robert Duvall beats up the entire family on screen. And, of course, all the people in Buford looking horrified because we're there. And Jim leans down the row of kids and says, Bambi. Somebody should taught Duvall to really know how to beat up a family. He looks like Bambi compared to Dad, and the kids fell apart on the front row. We know that Pat suffered physically, but Kathy, what about you and Carol, the girls? My dad really didn't physically abuse me. My dad was more into the terror and fear. The verbal? Very much verbal. It was impossible for Don to say he loved us or was proud of us. It never happened. Pat. And I can't understand why he was not proud of me. I can certainly understand why he was not proud of the younger children. <laughs> now, why, now, Jim, you're looking very stoic right now. Oh, the He's dark the dark one. one. The dark one, yes. <laughs> now, when you say the dark one, what does that mean? I have no idea, Walter. Pat, okay. What does, what does the— I'll be glad. Timby, would you like to— Well, Jim— he probably has the most remarkable memory of anybody in the family. It's not he, saying a lot, Walter. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> and he can sometimes be light and funny and see things in uh, incredible ways. But sometimes there's moments where Jim can see the truth of it all. And that truth sometimes is a dark truth. And it just comes out. He was uh, such a happy kid uh, at times. (laughs) And and he wanted, he wanted. He was just a joyful, happy little boy born to a monster. I think they're implying that I'm no longer happy. Jim has a son, Michael, just like him. And he's, you know, this kid, he's all over the place. He's funny. He's a, uh, but, you know, dad would have killed him if dad had been raising him. And we were once sitting around, and someone said, Michael is just like Jim, his father, was when he was a little boy. And what did you say? Well, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to now, but Michael has the same bravado as Jim. I mean, Michael would say he was good and great at everything. And he may have not never have tried it before, but just Jim's great bravado when he was a kid. Yeah. Jim just had great enthusiasm about stuff. And then Tim once said, you know, Jim was bright, happy, vivacious until dad broke his spirit <laughs> and turned him into the dark one who sits before us today. 
But I think it was that humor that saved us. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore from 2014, a conversation with the late Pat Conroy, world-renowned South Carolina author, and with his siblings, Mike, Tim, Jim, and Kathy, about the intersection of real life with Pat's fiction, what it was like to grow up with the great Santini as a father. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. So where did y'all get the humor? From your mom? We all no. have different fathers. <laughs> <laughs> mom did not have much of a sense of humor. And I didn't know Dad had one until yeah. after until we Mom divorced yeah. him. You know, I just didn't know he was funny because he never tried to be funny uh, when I was a kid. Never made me laugh. I didn't laugh at him at all. Now, you may have, you know, caught the, the, the late blooming dad where he was funny, you know, toward the he, end of the life. He wasn't funny. He really wasn't funny, I don't think, until the great Santini came out. And to me, when he read the book after he got over his anger, I think <laughs> he decided to be very competitive with Pat and show Pat that's not the way this is and that's not the person I was. But to me, in the process, he fell in love with his children. The Great Santini, the publication of that book, and the movie, which I think all of you say that the movie, the impression that that gave you, you were happy with that. Are you were comfortable with that? Loved it. You loved it. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. So I enjoyed it. So let's just start. When the book comes out, and let's talk about your individual reactions to The Great Santini. Jim? The um, the book came out and it was interesting because we all got a copy that night, and uh, I remember distinctly that Mike, Kathy, and I started reading the book at the same time, and we all finished the book that night at the same time, and it was funny because I ran into Kathy or Mike, and you know at the end of the book, and I'm sitting there and with tears in my eyes, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at Kathy and she's just at the same part, she's just finishing, and you know at the end of the Great Santini, my father dies. And I sit there and we're together and I look at her and I go, Kathy, we're crying. And, you know, I'm glad he died. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great ending. Yet the book is sad at the ending. So we kind of chuckled over that. Actually, that is a tribute to your older brother's writing. Oh, absolutely. That, that and we agree to that. We thought it was a great book. Yeah. And it's, uh, Kathy? I think the book was so difficult to read because we'd had a lifetime of secrets and all of a sudden, when you're reading your life in a book, it's not so secret anymore. So I think that that was a really difficult thing for, for me. Tim? You know, when I read the book, what was so hard about that book for me was the scene on the, the green in the point in Beaufort when the great Santini and the character Ben confronted each other and because I was, I, I knew where that scene came from. I lived that scene. Um, Just a second, Tim. Describe that scene for our listeners because they may not remember that. Well, the reality of the scene, I think the inspiration, was a night that my mother and father went to Paris Island for a movie. And uh, we all went to see the movie. And my father went to the O Club and probably had a few drinks and came back. There was tension between, very bad tension between my mother and father uh, that night. And there was a scene in the parking lot where uh, my mom tried to drive off and my father hit my mother uh, several times. And, you know, as a kid in the back seat of the car and having my mother say, lock the door, lock the door, and having that whole thing unfold and then come back into Pat's house with his family and his kids and have that, that, that terrible scene in, in the book take place and in, in where I knew what parts were real and what, what parts were not necessarily real. And, and the real scene was much worse to me than the book scene. And Pat, you may want to comment on some of that. You know, it was, it's one of those scenes, and there were a lot for me in our life. It was too emotional to take it all in for me. And what worried me about that night is that I'd never told my wife that I came from a family like this. 
I'd never told anybody that I'd been belted around by dad, been hit by dad, been abused by dad. I hadn't told a soul. So all of a sudden, I wake up upstairs, and it's the first time I've ever owned a house. And I'm very proud because, you know, none of us, we, we didn't live in a house we owned. So I owned the house before mom and dad. So I'm upstairs sleeping when they get back from the movie, and I hear the old sound. I hear the slaps going on, mom crying, kids crying, and I tiptoed down because I didn't want to wake Barbara, my wife. And I tiptoed down, and I see dad swatting mom, and I went crazy, and I just went absolutely nuts, drove dad through the front door, and I was still physically terrified of dad. I mean, this was not—but luckily for me, he was drunk. And so we went out, and I, I was kicking Dad. I was even doing a slapping him, and I put him in the car, and then he drove off, and he was weaving down the street so badly. And later I came in, and this is when it all came out. The kids are crying. I'm trying to—and my whole thing with the kids was trying to keep them quiet so they did not irritate Dad— and so I was trying to calm them down because this usually was safety if I could get everybody quiet. These are your children or are these? No, these are my brothers and sisters. My children did not wake up during this. Pat's, I'm sorry. Pat's children woke up and they were a little loud and Pat hit them. I just, uh, you know, hit kept them. The, the dark yeah, one yeah, speaks. <laughs> See, this is the dark one that we have. It's, uh, <laughs> we have. I, I remember that night, too, and running into your house and running up the stairs to get away from Dad. Right, Jim, how old were you then? I was right out, just finished in ninth grade. Okay. And we were moving to Beaufort, South Carolina, and my father was about to go to Vietnam, and, which was a good thing. And he, uh, <laughs> anyway, he... Uh, I was trying to get upstairs, and I ran across Barbara at the top of the stairs. And Barbara said, what's going on? I said, Barbara, I'm going to give you some advice. It's a real good idea not to go downstairs right now. And she said, this is my house. I can go anywhere I want. I said, Barbara, you go right ahead, but it's a real good idea to stay upstairs. <laughs> and Tim, you were obviously much younger than that at this point. Yeah, if you were in the ninth grade. You I just g- finished sixth. Yeah. yeah. And so I was in the sixth grade. You know, it was just a horrible night. I remember, you know, the drive back uh, from Paris Island. And your mom was driving. And uh, my no. dad was driving. She, he had forced his way into the car, slapped my mom, slapped us. My uh, head was uh, pressed against the window. And I thought about opening the door and just rolling out. It was, you know, it was one of those scenes that shaped me. Do you remember the movie? Butch Cassidy yeah, and the Sundance Kid. Very good. So. Yeah. And Kathy? I was a senior in high school. We had just moved to Beaufort, and I was going to be starting my senior year there when this happened. And as horrible as the night was, there was something really wonderful about someone being more powerful than Don. And at the what was good for me, it, it was the beginning of the great Santini for me, because Barbara is at the top of the stairs. What's going on in my house? And I'm down there at the bottom with the kids, and I'm going, oh, nothing, dear. It's nothing at all. And she said, something horrible is going on in my house. I demand to know what it is. Oh, it was just a little mishap, dear. And, you know, every lie I'd ever told came out, and she comes down, and she's furious. She says, something's going on. I want to know what it is. So we invite Mom in, <laughs> and see, and this, of course, the family sense of humor. Then with Barbara screaming, what's going on, me saying nothing, these little traitors gave me away by starting to laugh and giggle. Mom started to laugh and giggle. Oh, nothing. It's nothing. So Barbara comes in, and I have to tell her, you know, we've this is our life. This is how we've lived. Um, Dad knocks us around. Dad's tough. Uh, it's been awful. And she, why didn't you tell me? And I said, I should have. And I should have told lots of people, but I haven't. And that night, from that night, I began writing The Great Santini. And that broke something in me. And what had to break is where I told myself the truth. How did you kids 
keep it bottled up. A military family. Okay, I understand that. But I think because we had uh, each other to talk to and go through it together, I think that's what made the difference. Yeah, most of my brothers and sisters are very close and growing up with them. Even to this day, we're still very close. And it's uh, it's been nice to have a brothers and sisters that are very close, you know, going through with what we did. One of the things when the great Santini, the book came out, people thought Pat exaggerated. I hear that all the time. I've always heard that. And we look, I've told everybody, you know, just, hey, if you knew the truth, it was much worse in the book. And no one ever believes us. So I thought just... he was the nicest character, my dad in that book. I loved that dad. I wanted that dad. I prayed for that dad. <laughs> and your mom's reaction was she didn't like the fact that the Santini was the protagonist. Oh. She thought that it was a dope. And I didn't know this until you know the book comes out and you know she's furious it's called the Great Santini. She's furious it's it's not called, you know, mom and and you know that she was not the central driving force in the, the book. The angel from Alabama. The angel from Alabama. <laughs> I mean, you know, mom really saw herself in this glorious Hollywood sort of way. Mom was very Hollywood. Don't you think of she loved the the fanfare over the movie. Oh yeah, and the flashiness, and you know, even growing up, you know, mom was the type of mother who made all of us feel ugly. And I once asked my sister Carol, I said, "Why don't we look as good as mom?" And my sister Carol said, "She married the beast." <laughs> but she was a glorious looking woman. Took great, you know, pride in her beauty, and uh, of course, the rest of us, you know. We're still in therapy trying to get over mom and dad. And, and Walter, I don't know if you know this, but she's in The Great Santini. She's one of the characters, as is my younger brother, Tom. Mm-hmm. He's and talking about in the movie. The Great Santini. Mm-hmm. So she was, uh, she's a character, and she's in one of the scenes of the movie where her, her head is going back and forth like a you know, ping pong ball watching the kids play basketball, one side of the court to the other. There's Blythe Danner and Robert Duvall, and she's right between them on the row right above them. So anyway, for us to go back and see the movie, we can see my mother and we can also see my younger brother. So, All right. We want to welcome another Conroy sibling, Mike, to the journal. And so we've got everybody here but Sister Carol. Sometimes you get the impression from your writings, Pat, that maybe everybody doesn't get along. But, Jim, I understand your daughter got married last year and everybody was there? Yes, it was called Free Drinks. Walter, they were all. They all showed up for it. So it's uh, uh, Carol came. No, down Carol from... came down as well. So it's. Uh, and she, I think she had a great time. Kathy and I were just talking about today. Uh, I think she had a great time there, and she really enjoyed it. But uh, she has not been as close to the rest of us. Okay, but and she's that's... not estranged from the family. No, no. And y'all keep in regular touch, all of you, even weekly, now? weekly. No, I don't know that not. you could call it regular touch. There's no, times it's... when, for whatever reason, Carol has cut us off. So those periods have lasted a long time at different times in my life, adult life. Mm-hmm. I will hear from her at birthday, my birthday, and that's the only time I'll hear from her all year. And that's her choice. We've certainly tried to reach out to her. Mike, we've been talking really about the, the great Santini, and I've, I've heard your sister and your, and your brother's reactions to the book. You want to add anything about your reaction? to How old were you when the book came out? Uh, I was about 26. Okay. It's all lies. uh, (laughs) Dad and Mom were wonderful people. I don't know where Pat came up with this. No, we we support Pat very much. All right, I was going to say because that what you had just said was the minority minority (laughs) interpretation because I tossed out what a lot of people said about the great Santini, the book, and that was it was all an exaggeration. Nobody could have lived in a world like that. Oh, it it was pretty accurate. But, you know, we thought all families were like that. You know, we thought all families moved every year or twice a year. So we we had no other family to compare it with. Yeah, I didn't know that everybody wasn't going home after school getting beaten up. I just thought, you know, that's what a kid did. You know, you you finished school, said goodbye to everybody on the bus. I mean, is this nothing? I mean, surely you had childhood chums. Y'all didn't talk about, well, I got— there were other military well, kids. Yeah, yeah. and you also know, we moved our, every year. Our childhood chums were we moved to a new city. It takes a while to you know, develop you friends. You can't get a chum right away. Kathy mm-hmm. was, you know, one of the few I knew. 
of all the kids that, you know, could make a friend. She'd always make one friend. You know, Mike and Jim had such bad personalities that they never made a friend during the entire school year. It took me a long time to make friends, and then we consistently moved every nine months. So, you know, I didn't spend a night with somebody until I was a junior in high school. And I never would have anybody spend a night with me because I didn't want them being thrown through a plate glass window by Dad. Now, Pat, that was not true. In your college, you brought a group of friends home to the house in Virginia, where, remember the room? Oh, my God. That I slept in an unheated basement, but your room, you had to access through a closet. A closet for a dog. And I remember (laughs) Mike— had to get on your knees. I had to get on my knees. And I I have a guy that I played basketball with, and so I'd never been to the house. And they moved on me. And so Mike says, hey, you want to see your room? (laughs) And so he goes to his closet in this unheated basement, pulls open his clothes, and there's a little doggy door for me and John DeBross to slip through. And as we were going through it, DeBross says, nice bedroom, Conroy. (laughs) And we still laugh. We, We had some of the most terrible bedrooms you've ever seen. And this was just part of the military life that we, you know, I guess got used to. At least that bedroom had a, was a great hiding place for us when Dad got mad. Oh, I mean, we would always a hiding there. place. Yeah. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore from 2014, a conversation with the late Pat Conroy, world-renowned South Carolina author, and with his siblings, Mike, Tim, Jim, and Kathy, about the intersection of real life with Pat's fiction, what it was like to grow up with the great Santini as a father. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Kathy, did Pat wouldn't have friends over for sleepovers, did you? Or did... I did a couple of times, but it was always a dangerous situation. You had to be really careful because you never knew if my dad would be drunk or angry or upset or how he would come back into the house after work. Pat, again, I I understand the military family. I understand the moving. But when you got to Beaufort, as close as you were to Gene Norris, he didn't suspect anything was going on? Well, he did not. He later apologized to me for that. But I had an excuse. Mike had an excuse. All of us had an excuse as boys. You know, Dad really told me at the time, you know, you fell out of the tree, Jim. And Jim was showing off, as he always did as a kid, and falls out of a tree on your head. So Dad had this one thing that tickled me and Carol, and we, we could not help it. Is Jim came in, he's crying, he's bleeding. <laughs> and he comes in, and, and Dad had this thing. He says, all right, you better quit crying. And as soon as he would say, you better quit crying, whap, he would backhand you. And, of course, the kid, the little kid, He's crying 10 times as hard. Mom's with him. So I cracked up. Dad threw a glass at my head, broke my head open. And, you know, it, it was this sort of scene that just you did not know when it would break out. You had no idea when this was going to happen. You know, Mom wanted me and Carol to sit nearest Dad because we got the first hit. And she had us sit to the left because that's how he hit. He's left-handed. <laughs> So we would get the first hit, and Carol was dangerous because she irritated. You know, she could irritate Dad. (laughs) (laughs) But but Carol was the uh, I think one of the great victims of the family. Also, well, did all of y'all feel like victims? We We were definitely victims, but I don't know that you felt like that at the time when you were going through it. I think more than anything. I learned to sense danger, and when I walk into a room today, I can still feel it. Again, we thought all families were like this. You know, we, you know, certainly when we visited up north, the um, his, oh, his brothers were the same it. way. Dad's family, my yeah. God, they were horrible. The description of how they treated your mother, absolutely incredible. Mocking her accent. And they were to you. I don't even think y'all were born 
when those scenes happened. They did that when yeah, we when visited. We really? Oh, yeah. And we didn't visit there a lot. Uh-huh. When but we they went were up not, there, they'd mock our accents. They hadn't gotten None of them that? were very no, no. friendly towards was, any of us. You know, um, it was, and, and you, you have to remember back in the 60s or the late 50s, people didn't travel long distances. And we were living in Orlando or Virginia or D.C. or wherever. So they, they didn't come to visit us. So we would only see them once every few years, which was a blessing. <laughs> and... Uh, but they, and, and of course, in the fifties and sixties, the stereotypes about the South were were correct. rampant. They st- they're still out there, but they were. But with them, it was just you know beyond the pale. You know, when I wrote a book, you know, my grandmother said, "Oh, I'm so glad you learned how to write books." I didn't even know you could read, Pat. <laughs> so, you know, this was so Grandma. I just didn't like, and I had this other Stanny, this woman I adored. And I don't know how you all like Stanny. You know, she was crazier oh, when that. she, you know, came around. Stanny is Mrs. Conroy's mother. But what I was going to say is you talk about the Chicago family. It sounds like your dad was reared in something of a dysfunctional household. Did you all ever hear anything about that? I've heard from some of the uncles, and you know, that they didn't— they weren't raised in a real nice family either. That it was very dysfunctional, and that they were beaten and hit quite a few times. I've heard that from my uncles up there when I was there yep. visiting. It um, certainly doesn't give my father the excuse. But no, no, I, I wasn't. Try, I wasn't trying to I give an excuse, yeah, but it, it just in your characterizations of the visits there, and then also, for example, your uncle who was the priest and the way. He actually knocked people around. He knocked you. He knocked around. me around. He, I found him knocking Tim around. Uh, when I threatened to beat him up, uh, you know, when I was in college, he, he slapped you at uh, Great Falls in Virginia. And uh, I, you know, you know, you would love him. I think <laughs> I think the difference was is that Tim deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he was also the priest that comes down to deliver these terrible, horrible sermons. And we remember we, we sent it. What was it? A Tom's funeral. Tom. Yeah. You know, we're sitting there and. He said that Tim had died. Here was it. We go no, no, that was that? at the uh, the funeral home. But I think he made yeah. the same mistake. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. He I made the same said... mistake the next day, even after we corrected it. Well, and you know, when, when he said funeral. again, he said, you know, we are here together. The the untimely death of. And he looks down. And he says, uh, Timothy Conroy. And I looked back at Tim, and I said, Tim, I'm sorry you're dead. (laughs) I thought it was time. There were groans all over the church when he said that, too. I mean, it just went on. Then that was when Carol started throwing the softball straight in the air. It was just—it's always with the Conroys, a nightmare. This is why when Jim's beautiful daughter, Rachel, got married, I thought, in my tension, was not anything that happened, but what could have happened. There, there was a lot of potential there, Walter. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it went over well. We were delighted with the wedding, but so there was a you, lot of you, things could have happened. Had you explained to your wife what might have happened before, you know, like Pat hadn't told Barbara what kind of family she was marrying into. Was your wife prepared? Well, we were kind of worried about her family a little bit too, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was. She's. You know, we've been married for you know over thirty years, and so she's you know well aware of my brothers and sisters, and you know, my, and she knew my father too, and my mother. You know, she wasn't as worried about our family. She hasn't seen it as much, but. All right, let's go back to growing up years, and Pat, you've chronicled very much how your mother read to you and to Carol, and made sure that you were. As Robert Penn Warren said, bookish. You had a bookish upbringing. She read poetry to you. Did she do that with the rest of rest of you all, Mike? No, no, no. no. She didn't. She, you know, but she got to the reading was always encouraged. You, yeah. if you were reading, you were, you were pretty safe. I always thought it was because I was a fifth child, and she stopped reading after that. Just going, it wasn't worth it. So I mean, you know, this was one of the great surprises of mine when my reading life came out. Because Tim says she never read a word to me in my life. And, you know, Kathy and Mike and Jim, they did not get read to. And it shocked me. And I'm sure it would shock Carol. Photographs of your children. You know, the first one, you have a million photographs. Well, 
We don't, we, don't, we don't have a photograph of Tim growing up. She was exhausted by the time yeah. she got the, to me and Tom. I know. think so. She's yeah. saying, look at all the good things I did with the first two. None of it worked. So why <laughs> do any more? Yeah, when I was stopped. in the fifth grade, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and my mother had a hysterectomy. And I think that things for her became very different. She wasn't the same after that. And I think she became depressed and exhausted. That was a tough year. That year, Pat went off to the Citadel uh, as a freshman. And And you wouldn't believe how he complained about getting a college education. Free clothes. Free free clothes, free food. You listen to the University of South Carolina (laughs) complaint. I complained about the plebe system, and they're thinking, oh, clothes and, you know. Food yeah. and mom was cheap, and these kids, you know, did not have much in uh, going through Carolina. Mom would leave them out, you know, on a corner. And uh, what you said, Tim, that you didn't have a dorm room. Oh, <laughs> uh, when I was, um, you know, I, I sometimes when the day comes where uh, the parents move in students to the university, and you see these loving parents take such care moving their sons and daughters and transitioning to these these high school students to college. And my experience, Walter, was so different. My mom pulled up to uh, the student housing authority on Pendleton Street. I walked in and they told me that I was on a waiting list for a dorm room. Uh, I came out and I told mom, mom, I don't know what to do. I'm on a waiting list. I don't have a room to stay. And uh, she unloaded my suitcases, and she said, they'll work it out. And she drove off. (laughs) Well, did they work it out? No. (laughs) I walked over to what was then the Campus Club South and told the bartender my story, and he died laughing and introduced me to about 30 people that night. And I ended up staying in a foyer on Green Street for about three weeks until my dorm room was was open. And that was my introduction to the University of South Carolina. And he was one of the lucky ones. <laughs> well, what was your experience, Jim? Oh, uh, yeah, they were all different. But the, uh, the one thing is that he, his mother or our mother dropped him off at school. You know, I left Hawaii where I went to high school at and, and came across the country after my father nearly knocked me through a sliding glass door. And my mother moved to Beaufort. My father ended up moving to Atlanta. But they never visited us the entire time. I, I think my father came up my senior year at college and visited us for the first time. Uh, so he never saw a dorm room, never saw where I stayed. Um, you know, I had to go back and forth with my own things. But, yeah, they just didn't visit. So it's just uh, interesting parents. I'm just thinking in terms of time. Your dad retired. They divorced right after he retired. So you, the younger... She actually... from a broken home. She actually left uh, Hawaii a year before he did, for, and for the reason being to fix up the house in Beaufort, which they had purchased from Pat. So you know, she, was, uh, she was in Beaufort a year before, and when my father retired, he came across from Hawaii, retired in Beaufort, and that's when she hit him with the divorce papers, mm-hmm. uh, which she should have done that 30 years earlier, but... Kathy, you were the only child to testify in that case, weren't you? Yes. There was a wonderful judge at that divorce hearing, um, Judge Fanning, yeah. who said, Kathy, I want you to tell me one story. And I did. And he said, thank you, and told me to go sit down. So I think he was probably the most wonderful man mm-hmm. to me that day. My mom was crazy at that hearing and caused a huge scene. My mom required a lot of attention. And the minute before um, Dad walked into the courtroom, she said, I think he's carrying a weapon, and there's going to be trouble, and this is going to be horrible. And they went back and talked to Judge Fanning, and Judge Fanning went up and talked to my dad and said, are you carrying a weapon? And he said, no. And they asked Marine to Marine. Oh, okay. And, you know, that was good enough. And I think Dad broke down in tears. And, you know, we'd never seen—I didn't know Dad had an emotion that would include tears. You know, one of the things I wanted to 
my brother and sister talk about is the Sister Carol thing that you nothing I felt guiltier about in the book than writing about Sister Carol. And we all know she's a wounded but powerful human being, and she exerts a powerful force on me and I think all of us. Yeah, I'll tell one quick story. Go ahead. When I was a beginning teacher, I was working at a, a school who served kids with autism. And a lot of the students at attending this school happened to be from New York. And so one holiday season, one Christmas season, I flew the kids back up to New York, about four kids. They were 16 to 18 year old, years old. And once I got to New York City, met up with Carol. And she spent, and I was supposed to stay with her. And this was really my introduction to New York City. I was really excited. And she spent very little time with me. Um, you know, I stayed in her place, but we interacted very, uh, just a very little bit. And one of the interactions, she wanted me to tell my brothers and sisters that she did not want anything to do with them anymore. And I said, Carol, you're going to have to deliver that message. You're going to have to tell them. Not me. I'm not the messenger. And so I think she was going through therapy at the time, and I think probably in her therapy, her therapist probably told her that was something she needed to do. Did she tell you she didn't want to interact with you anymore? She kind of told me by her lack of having anything to do with me while I was there. All right. Did she deliver that message to you all? Or did no, it, I think she. I think she. Yeah. I think so. I think she eloquently <laughs> got it across. We've given the same message to Tim. Though, so it's, you know, we can't shake him. <laughs> no, I didn't see. Carol told me at my mother's funeral that her shrink, Naoko, knew more about our family than anybody else on earth. And I said, "Really? Yeah, you know, I don't seem to remember meeting Naoko." And I said, "Carol, can't we say that Naoko knows more about our family than anyone on earth?" because of what she's heard from you. And she said, she says our family is toxic. And I said, Carol, I've made a very good living on that particular idea. And I couldn't agree with you more. But I did not see Carol from the time of mom's funeral until Tom committed suicide. And you know, we, we did not see each other, have anything to do with each other at all. And she just told me she wasn't gonna see me. And she didn't. So now the last time I saw her is generally she shows up at celebrations, uh, weddings, funerals. She's a good Southern girl no, no matter she, what. You know, she always you know, come, comes back for that and usually makes her presence known. Well, but it sounds like the last show when at, at your daughter's wedding, Jim, that there weren't scenes yeah, there was potential, but she was very good. She was on her best behavior, and I think she enjoyed it very much, so it was nice for us nice for us to see that. So, I have some wonderful nieces that are Jim and Pat's children that were so gracious and loving and wonderful, along with my son who was at the wedding. They loved Carol so much and tried to have Carol participate in their lives, but it's... um really difficult to be able to stay in Carol's life because she's not able to. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is an encore from 2014, a conversation with the late Pat Conroy, world-renowned South Carolina author, and with his siblings, Mike, Tim, Jim, and Kathy, about the intersection of real life with Pat's fiction, what it was like to grow up with the great Santini as a father. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Well, one thing you, you mentioned earlier, both of you, is at the divorce, your father crying, and that this was the first time you'd really seen him give any kind of emotion or certainly of, I guess, interpreting crying as a, as a sign of weakness, which he'd interpreted that as a, you know, you mentioned when Jim fell out of the tree and was crying, plop you upside the head because that's what, you should stop crying. And that really was the first time you saw him express any kind of emotion. Did I can remember. Can you all remember another time you saw Dad crying? Yeah, Tom's death. Tom's death Let's was see. awful. Yeah. Tom's. Uh, it, broke that's, it broke. That yeah. was, it broke Dad completely. Yeah. Mike took care of Tom. 
and Mike, you know, performed heroically in that. But every once in a while, Tom would go off, and he'd go off his meds or he'd go off something. So when Tom committed suicide, that broke something in our family. But Dad was so broken up, cried so hard, cried for so long. I remember getting together the night, you know, we buried Tom and just say, okay, we now know Dad loves us. He just, he can't show it. But, you know, his reaction at Tom was so emotional and it seemed so authentic that he said, ah, okay. When we walked in the funeral home the night before the burial, I saw my dad's knees buckle from the outpouring of the community and family. It was so full of flowers. It was beautiful. That's where we're blessed to be from South Carolina because nobody rallies behind a family like South Carolinians do in a time of need. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it it, it gets us every time. Well, and you also talked about being inundated with the food. I mean, the very traditional South Carolina folks you that were, quote, your neighbors that you didn't really know were your neighbors, all of a sudden they are on your doorstep to help you through this. And they've done it every time, mm-hmm. you know, every time. And uh, it, it gets to us. And I think because we're a military family, it really gets to us. And how we have, you know, come to this state and this state has, you know, kind of embraced our family. And it's been a very nice thing. Well, Although my my brother and sister do have one thing they did to tickle me about my sister Carol. They talk about how Carol is going to take the news when one of them gets to call her to say that Pat has died. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now see they're grinning now. Okay, okay. Mike, you're, you're grinning the biggest. Oh. Well, the uh, I know I always want to see Carol happy. The, uh, <laughs> I know that's going to really tickle her that call. And I've I've have some experience in making these phone calls, you know. And when when uh, Tom died, when Mom, Mom died, died, I, I have mean... to call the others, telling them, you know, what happened. You know, Kathy made when Dad died. Kathy made the phone call. But um, that will be interesting to see Carol's reaction. Now she will come down for that funeral. Well, she's already prepared the eulogy. <laughs> That's right. I didn't know if you knew Carol was going to do your eulogy. I, I heard she wrote it 21 years ago. It, she wrote a poem for it. Beowulf is smaller than the poem Carol is writing. And, and they did it. They did one time. They were talking about calling Carol to tell Carol I died. And they see they did the dance of Carol as she dances around the room. This and. Um, so the family, I do think what, what Kathy says, the family humor has helped us. Uh, the dark one, the dark one kills us because he, his humor is, even for a Conroy, <laughs> I mean, his humor is out of sight. And, and it's dry. It's inhuman. <laughs> well, let's have an example. You keep talking about it, but I hadn't heard it yet. I apologize for that, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> well... This is open mic time. I didn't, I didn't prepare any lines. Well, <laughs> Tim did. But Tim was ready. Tim was, you know. That's, you know, I just, you know, like to um, say that my brother Mike sells real estate. My brother Jim is right. huge in the, in the uh, Mexican frozen food business. And Reese Foods. Yeah, Reese out Foods. Of Danuba, California, Walter. I do want to tell you, I, I saw my dad cry a lot after the great Santini movie came out. Every time they showed the part about his death, he would have tears running down his face and tell me, tragic. This is tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be so fun to watch it because it happened every time. Pat made such a mistake. This is tragic. He would be happy to know that there was another great Santini book out. Yeah, he'd be signing it, you know, I mean... Uh... You know, when I told him the name of this book and he was dying, The Death of Santini, he said, hey, great title. Uh, you really know how to make a guy feel good. <laughs> <laughs> Any of you had a reaction from Carol to this book? Mm. Okay. I have not. Okay. 
I don't know if she's read any of them after the great Santini. She's oh, read them. Yeah, I'm sure she's read them. Yeah. I can tell How you my reaction. Like, well, she uh, wrote what, me a little card about this book. What? Yeah. Okay, the, uh, this is Conroy Secrets. And I just want that. It was a little postcard saying the uh, basically don't believe anything Pat said. It's all lies, which, you know, the uh, I, I have to take it a grain of truth anyway on that. <laughs> Tim? Oh, I was just going to say, reading The Death of Santini was like beating myself up with a lead pipe for every page. It was a tough read. Uh, my wife and I usually read Pat's books out loud to each other because we don't want to be finished before the other. So we, won't, you know, so we usually take the time and, and read it to each other. And uh, I tried to do this. We tried to do this with The Death of Santini, but my wife, Terry, was crying so much that I could not get through. And it's a tough book. It's well, redemptive, but it's tough. Well, I'd say even for a non-family member, yes, it is a tough book. But we're not victims. We're survivors. And you look at all of us, and we survived. Well, you know, I'm still trying to, to fathom where you all got the sense of humor. It had to be from my dad. I was going to say the Irish you genes. See, you know, there's no, my mom dad did not have was so funny, but we didn't know that when we were children. And it's well, also gallows humor. All right, well, you know. well, what about Stanny? She seems to, your, your maternal grandmother, she seems to be an incredible individual who certainly was lighthearted and. I think she was a storyteller. Did she live with you all a lot when, you know, after? Enough to why I know why you're laughing, yes. This like I would call Sandy when mom had her hysterectomy when I was a freshman at the Citadel. And, you know, the Citadel doesn't encourage you to call home much. And because my family's extraordinarily cheap, whenever – and I would get this with mom. There's a collect phone call from Pat Conroy, and I'd hear from my mother. We don't know a Pat Conroy. <laughs> 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 and I'd have to say, mom, we answer the phone. And – but Stanny, you know, and she she had a drinking problem, and I don't know what that was like for y'all, you know, up in Omaha, Nebraska. But I would get Stanny on the phone, and she would go. She had some drinks, and she would say, "Your mama's dying. She's just dying. You're gonna be down there at the Citadel doing nothing while she's just up here dying, and you're gonna have to come home and take care of these children." And, and that was a promise I made to mom. Alfred's giving me the wind-up. What I'd like to do is to let each one of you have a last word before we sign off. And since, Tim, you're seated to my right, I'm going to ask you to go first. It's been a journey with all of my brothers and sisters. And really, I think because of Pat's writing and his work, it allowed us to have truth and illumination of sort of the, the pain and suffering we went through. And it has proven to me just redemptive. Uh, his work has helped us. It's brought us closer. It's made us stronger. And when you read his works, all of them, from his fiction to his nonfiction, he always exposes the truth. Okay. Kathy? I'm very grateful for the, the, the book, The Great Santini. The book... As painful as it was when it came out, helped my dad reinvent himself. I know he did it as competition, but he ended up loving all of us and showing us. Jim? I wanted to make a comment about my father. Um, Pat spoke of him as never having said that he loved any of us. My father told me he loved me constantly. And I think it was just the other brothers and sisters. And now that you've met them, Walter, you probably understand a little bit why he didn't love them as much. But uh, he certainly did say that to me. Okay. Thank you. So, so you and Bobby Joe. Uh, well, uh, yes, I would be just like Bobby Joe. Now, he, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed all of Pat's books. He's been a great writer. In each one, he's gotten better and better. Pat has, you know, involved all of us in all of his books, movies, or whatever. He's, uh, he's been a fabulous brother, as have my other brothers and sisters as well. So. Okay. All right, Mike? Well, uh, Pat's spoken this many times. Uh, the dad had a 
had a great second act. You know, he was real hard on us when we were young. But as we got to be adults, we basically told Dad, you either change or you're not going to be in our lives. And to his credit, he changed 100% and became a great grandfather and a nice person to be around. But we just weren't going to put up with the, the attitude we had to put up with as kids. Okay. Pat? You know, just sitting here in this interview, is it made me wish I had a much better group of brothers and sisters <laughs> to share the journey that Tim talks with. No, but, you know, the one thing that I have loved about my writing career is throughout everything— you know, I cannot explain this. I cannot understand it all. But there was something about the Conroys that ended up adoring each other. And, you know, I can say violence. I can say this. I can say tragedy. We've all had tragedy. We've all gone through this. But, um, you know, you hit a mother load of pure love when you're dealing with the Conroy family. And I think this has been the theme of my life my work, my fiction, and my writing in general. Well, I'd like to thank Kathy Harvey, Tim Conroy, Jim Conroy, Mike Conroy, and Pat Conroy for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program was an encore from 2014, a conversation with the late Pat Conroy, world-renowned South Carolina author, and with his siblings, Mike Tim, Jim, and Kathy about the intersection of real life with Pat's fiction, what it was like to grow up with the great Santini as a father. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.